Uh, welcome to the CSBI podcast. I'm here today with uh, Amy Wax. Um, Amy, uh, can you introduce yourself? Just a short introduction for the audience. Okay, well, I'll make it short since you can look me up and learn everything you need to know and more. Uh, I'm the Robert Mudtime Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where I've taught for more than 20 years. Uh, I teach litigation-related subjects, uh, including remedies. I used to teach civil procedure until the dean took that away from me. Uh, I teach uh, a course in a conservative political and legal thought and law and neuroscience, and I've taught various other things at Penn. And before that, I was at UVA, then I was at the Justice Department under Reagan and Bush, uh, and I graduated from Columbia Law School. Uh, so those are the salient facts. What did you do in the Justice Department? I didn't know that part. I was in an office called the Office of the Solicitor General, which represents the United States for the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so that was that was a dream job obviously, uh, worked with some great people and argued 15 cases before the United States Supreme Court while I was there. So really exciting. Yeah, that does sound exciting. Uh, the You you also have a PhD in, in neuroscience, right? Actually, I have an MD. I have an MD uh, from Harvard Medical School where I focused on neuroscience. And I also... Uh, in my long life, I, I did a residency in neurology. So I was on my way to practicing neurology, but then I spent a year in law school and that sort of turned me in a different direction. <laughs> you just fell in, did you just fall in love with the law? Well, I think the law was probably more suited to my temperament and interests all along. Uh, every Jewish girl who even thinks the thought of becoming a doctor is uh, as a friend of mine said, you can't take that back. Uh, so I decided to go to medical school. And uh, medicine, I think, was just a poor fit for me. Law was a much better fit for me. So I came to law a little bit later, but uh, I really felt very comfortable in that profession. Yeah. And so you've obviously done well for yourself, but um, you know, there's there's been some controversy, and I've been uh, covering it on Twitter, and some people have probably been uh, reading about it. Uh, where 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 are we? Are they still? They wrote a letter. We'll post the link to this, but they wrote a letter, I think, from the dean to the faculty senate at Penn, right, at, or whatever faculty, whatever whatever they have is. Is it the senate? And they uh, and said we're seeking some kind. You know, they were asking for some kind of. Um, Severe sanction. I, I forget the terminology, but major uh, sanctions—they're called. Yes, and that's a euphemism for uh, firing you. Is that is that is that is or that, a euphemism for you might get fired? Uh -huh. uh, there's a, there's at least a chance, perhaps a good chance, that you'll be fired. Uh, but because this is sort of terra incognita, and it's very rare at a place like Penn that a school will try to strip someone of tenure. It's kind of an unknown area. So it's very hard to make predictions, but that's part of the saga here. Um, over the past few years, I have said things and expressed opinions and taken positions that uh, have incurred the wrath of an increasingly intolerant uh, university community. Um, and you've probably been following the progress of this growing intolerance. Uh, and uh, a number of people, instead of trying to refute me or take on my arguments, uh, they 
final common pathway these days is fire her, get rid of her. Uh, she's a racist. Um, the dean initially resisted that, but as the calls grew louder, he folded and said, no, we're going to really, we're going to try to sanction her. She doesn't belong here. Um, we don't like her views. That was essentially it. Uh, her opinions piss people off and make people upset and unhappy. So I am officially going to file a complaint against her. Uh, and then I am going to refer this complaint to the Senate committee that is in charge of deciding what to do when uh, university actors seek major sanctions against uh, university members. And I'm actually a tenured professor, uh, so I'm supposed to have protection for my views and opinions and positions. That's the whole tradition of academic freedom. Uh, so this represents a very bold move on their part. Uh, there have been a lot of attempts to cancel uh, professors uh, recently. Um, this is one of the pure attempts to cancel someone, namely me, uh, just for speech. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's noticeable. So, uh, when you read the letter, usually, you know, sometimes they can find some kind of, like, I think, uh, the, the Jonathan Katz guy at, at Princeton, I think they, what did they get him for? Was it some kind of relationship with a, was it a relationship with the student? What was it, or was it plagiarism? It's usually like something like that, right? They, they will find something that arguably, you know, is, you know, the, the, it's a pretext. Um, but it's, you know, usually because they did something unwoke or, uh, uh, on PC, um, and, but you, your case, I mean, it is pure. I mean, you read this, it's like, she said something hurtful to this homosexual. She said something hurtful to this African-American student. I mean, it is really just pure speech. I mean, is there, is, is there any, do you, what's it, what's your, I, I mean, do you think that they ever like, were they ever did you ever think have the impression that they were maybe thinking about trying to invent some kind of pretext beyond this? Because I just found it remarkable that they they don't even feel the need to do that. They just feel like the words are basically enough to at least make a case. Well, um, you know, there is this principle, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. Uh, <laughs> they really had a hard time coming up with a crime in my case. Uh, yeah, it's true. Josh Katz did have a relationship with an undergrad. Uh, many believe that's just a pretext for, you know, dumping him because of his views. You're right. They often look at plagiarism or other academic misconduct. In my case, there's really nothing like that. Now, they have tried to engage in this strange and sinister um, rhetorical leger de main where they say, well, you know, her speech is really behavior and it's behavior that's hurtful and harmful and traumatizing uh, for our students. And it's contrary to the mission and the values of the university. So they're trying to transmogrify my, my speech, my political views, my positions into a form of behavior that now becomes sanctionable. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, this is a really awkward move. Uh, they're feeling very insecure about it because they keep tacking on all these allegations. Many uh, recent ones are just plain false, that I've insulted students in class or said things in class that are presumably offensive. I mean, you know, we can talk about particulars. Uh, number one, I didn't say a number of things they said I said. These are the products of the fertile imagination of students, but also it's questionable whether these are sanctionable 
remarks. I mean, they, you know, they just keep piling on because they know that uh, there is a duplicity at the heart of what they're trying to do to me. I mean, on the one hand, they profess to be believers in and defenders of academic freedom and diversity of thought and all of that. I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric out there on their websites and all sorts of informal commitments to, you know, the Woodward Report and the university, uh, you know, the American University guidelines on the one hand. On the other hand, they file this long indictment of me for saying offensive stuff. So, you know, how do you reconcile these two? I mean, frankly, Richard, they can't be reconciled. Okay. I mean, they're just completely inconsistent. But, you know, there's a broader agenda here that's very interesting. And that is the desire to totally eviscerate tenure so that people who have unapproved and non PC opinions like me will be utterly eliminated and purged from the elite academy. This is a bold move for a totally woke takeover of the academy, and especially the private academy where the First Amendment doesn't apply. Um, they're just basically seeing what they can get away with. Uh, they, this is kind of a trial balloon here with me, and it's very unclear how far they'll go. I don't think even they know how far they'll go because at the end of the day, it's a question of power and politics uh, that's going to govern this, not principle. Yeah. Well, my 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 um, sort of thought on this was that they they never w would go after tenure because it wouldn't really be necessary. I mean, I think after the next generation that they're thinking that basically there's enough in the system to sort of weed out anyone with dissident thoughts. So if you apply for a job today, you have to you know take a diversity pledge. Uh, but you know people are watching you. So I'd like to see the kind of person who can. Um, be right wing or be be uh, unwoke and actually get through and get actual tenure today. I don't think it's. I think it's much less possible than it was decades before. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we're kind of in a liminal period. We're we're in a transitional period where there are a few cuckoos left in the nest. Uh, people like me, uh, and that just enrages them. Like, how did you get through the filter? And and now, how do you dare speak up? Given that you know, all of these horrific sanctions will be brought down on your head. I mean, you know, everything you can think of, I mean, student boycotts, social ostracism, you know, uh, name calling by your deans, uh, people uh, ignoring you completely. I mean, you, you become a, a total pariah in the academy. There's so many ways, the process, which is punishment. I mean, what they're putting me through, which is, you know, ridiculous, uh, they, you're right. Now they have all these other tools for keeping people like me out ab initio. You have to take these diversity pledges. If there's any hint that you're not with the program, the sort of D.I.E., uh, you know, song that you have to sing and all of the principles that go with it, uh, you're not going to make it through the filters. I mean, you know, you have to survive six, seven years of graduate school, postdoc, junior professorship. It really takes a special person to be able to suppress their views for that long. Uh, maybe there are a few people out there who are still doing it. I, I know the few that are out there.
uh, and they're very disciplined people. But uh, yeah, there there is going to be this mono academy uh, in the future, and it's a pretty scary prospect. Yeah. So just uh, before we move on to sort of other things, the the um, uh, the sort of where is the is the what are we what are you doing now? Are you waiting for the is the are they going to have hearings? Are they going to have a report? What's the what's the faculty senate going to do? Well, uh, they're trying to convene a committee to quote unquote hear my case. Um, I've asked for all of this information and you know discovery and. Uh, facts that are in their possession that are relevant to my defense. Um, I'm about to file a big memo asking for things like, and I've, I've discussed this with you, a forensic examination of the grades of students from different racial groups, because one of the things that they keep indicting me about over and over again is that I spoke falsely about the performance of minority students under affirmative action, which is kind of a joke because there are a number of data sets that show that in other schools, you know, what I said is true and valid. And everybody I've spoken to who teaches in an elite law school has experienced the same thing that I've experienced, although they won't speak up about it. Uh, And so the school is in the position of insisting that, you know, oh no, our black and white students do equally well. uh, But, refusing to produce the data that shows that. And, you know, that's, that just violates every rule of fairness, Richard. Uh, There are other things that, you know, they've said that require further proof and evidence or just preposterous. There are names that they've called me and labels they've slapped on me. And uh, I'm just asking for some basic definitions for some sources in the rules for, you you can't say this, you can't say that. Um, I, I'm asking for a lot of information. So that is the stage at which we're at. And uh, I'll be waiting for their response on that to see if, you know, I'm going to be allowed to defend myself or whether this is going to be a deck stacked, one sided star chamber. As you can imagine, for a private institution like Penn, the rules, when you start looking at them, are you know, completely tilted in the institution's favor. Um, They are a party to the case, but they're also the decision maker in the case. Uh, They have very few obligations to you. You have very, very few rights. Uh, They say that you're entitled to fairness, but they get to be the judge in their own case and decide what fairness is. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out, I think. Um, You know, very few people are even challenged on tenure. If you look back at the history of Penn, I think they've taken tenure away from a a handful of people. One murdered his wife. Uh, The other one, you know, failed to show up for class. I mean, there's very little track record here. Uh, So as I said, this is unknown territory. And yet we want to help you. There's the GoFundMe page. Is it still up? They often, they often, uh, they're often taking ones. They're, they're often taking stuff down. Is it still up? And how's how's that going? No, they've reactivated it. It's still good. But there's now a new fund called AmyWaxDefense.org. It's actually tax deductible, which a friend of mine has uh, helped set up in D.C. It's AmyWaxDefense one word dot org. Uh, you can give money through that. 
You can give money through my uh, GoFundMe page, which is uh, the Amy Wax Legal Defense Fund. Or if people are interested in helping me out, they can just email me and I have another uh, fund down with the Palm Beach Freedom Institute. So I have a number of, of fundraising mechanisms in place here. And it's, you know, let me just say that um, I'm committed to seeing through this case uh, to the bitter end. There's a reason why most people in my position retire or give up or withdraw or just, you know, throw up their hands and leave academia. And that is what happens to most people. Um, it's very expensive. It's very bruising uh, to go through this. Um, Josh Katz at Princeton, who you mentioned, he is someone who stayed the course. He ended up being fired. Uh, but someone like Ilya Shapiro, you know, just said, gives up. I don't blame him for that. Not at all. Um, I mean, he's a lot younger than I am. He has his family to think about. So as you can see, the Academy is very good at driving people out uh, who aren't with the program. Are you indifferent whether people go to GoFundMe or the Amy Wax Fund? Is it just the, um, is it just the tax deductibility issue? If people want a tax deductible, they should go to the Amy uh, Wax Foundation? Is that the Do only either. Um, the GoFundMe uh, was was hung up briefly, and I'm sure they lied to me about why someone accused me of being a racist. But they've released my funds, and the GoFundMe page is up and running. So okay. uh, people that, won't be able to tax; they won't be able to deduct it from their taxes from GoFundMe. That's the only reason. right. And and there's actually a small fee for GoFundMe. I see. So, okay. AmyWaxDefense.org might be a better place to contribute. Yeah, I think people some might want GoFundMe for the the convenience of it. You're right, but yeah, it's to get uh, right. give people those those options. I, I you know I you know, one of the things you know I really like about you, Amy, is um, like Shapiro. I mean, he he apologized. I mean, these people they will often it's both the substance of what they say and then their sort of reaction when the mob comes after them. One of the things you keep getting in trouble for is. You know, it's like, it's not that like risky to, I mean, I guess it is to a certain extent to oppose affirmative action. Like a lot of people will say they're against affirmative action. You know, this is, this is not that, that strange, but for someone to actually say, look, affirmative action has a natural implication um, that whenever you see black people at top universities, they're not going to be as capable as the white students and they're not going to do as well. And you say, you know, you see that from, from your experience. I had one, you know, I've had People say, the professors say that to me when I was in law school, uh, too. This is sort of a kind of uh, common knowledge. But but this strikes people as as mean, right? They want to they oppose affirmative action. Yeah, forget the, the liberals. I mean, look at the people who actually oppose affirmative action. They, they want to they, they, they want to say, you know, merit is important. Everyone should be judged as an individual. But at the same time, they want to say, well, this doesn't tell me anything about any particular black person. And you shouldn't have any thought in your head that, you know, a black Harvard grad is less intelligent than a white Harvard isn't this sort of isn't this sort of like Weasley? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, things are moving very rapidly. I would say that it might have been forgivable to voice opposition to affirmative action maybe five years ago or certainly ten years ago in the abstract within academia. I would say today it's a very risky thing to do. It has become less and less acceptable. I mean, you really have to adopt the dogma of affirmative action is great. It's wonderful. It's necessary. We can't do without it. 
you know, diversity is our paramount value. So I'm not sure I will agree with you that within academia, it's okay to say that. Okay, now, rel relative to the stuff you say. Uh, okay, well, now we get outside academia. And yes, in the think tanks and the like, it is okay to oppose affirmative action. But you're absolutely right when it gets down to you know, what are the, the implications of affirmative action? What does it really mean? Uh, people get very shy and kind of skittish. They don't want to say, well, you know, here's the problem. The reason we need affirmative action is that we still have a pretty significant achievement gap, IQ gap, test score gap, proficiency gap. And what does that mean? That means that when you admit people through affirmative action, which, you know, not 100% of blacks are admitted, but a very significant number are admitted through affirmative action, chances are they are not going to do as well, by and large, as other people. So if you assume that they're not as proficient, or if they turn out not to do as well academically or get as high grades, I mean, that's, that's to be expected. Um, people just don't want to, you know, get down to details like that. And it results in a very interesting and bizarre paradox, which is it's, it's kind of a, an example of, of Michael Anton's parallax celebration, right? I mean, on the one hand, affirmative action is fantastic. It's great. We have to have it. Every good person is in favor of it, right? And if you read the Harvard briefs, you, you can see this in action. Uh, we, we need it for diversity. If we don't have it, we won't have this wonderful diversity on the one hand. On the other hand, if you even dare to suggest that any given person is the beneficiary of affirmative action, that they got where they are in large part because of affirmative action, you've just insulted them, right? And that's grounds to fire you. I mean, that's one of the indictments against me that I said to some student, you know, 10 years ago, oh, you're, you only got into the schools you got into because of affirmative action. Now, I never said that, actually. That's one of the allegations that's totally made up. Um, but even if I hadn't said it, right, I mean, why is that an insult? And how am I supposed to know what it is when everybody around me tells me that affirmative action is the greatest thing since sliced bread? Well, the two are just kind of well, they, they can say that about themselves. I got into affirmative. So Sotomayor and Obama can say things like, I benefited from affirmative action. If you say it and you're opposed to affirmative action, right, then it's a problem. Right. It, That's it parallax celebration. It depends on whose mouth it comes out of, sort of like replacement theory, right? If Democrats say, isn't it wonderful we're going to be a majority minority nation in, in 15 years? That's That's progress. That's great. You know, Whites will be in the minority. That's something to be uh, proud of and celebrated. But if a white person says, you know, uh, we're being replaced, uh, I'm not sure that's such a great thing. Well, there are racists and a white supremacist. So it's, it's this idea that, you know, if the wrong person says it, then it's bad. Um, so, you know, we have these sorts of bizarre uh, paradoxes and contradictions. But of course, Richard, the whole point here, and this is a broader, a broader point, the whole point is to impose these kinds of irrational, hyper-emotional, contradictory, illogical, 
you know, factually ill-founded, irrational ideas on the academy because rationality, evidence, uh, reason, logic, these are whiteness. This is stuff we want to get rid of, okay? And the students are taught from day one to be suspicious of all of these standards and these strictures. So, you know, the fact that we're contradicting ourselves, saying inconsistent things, saying stuff that's against the evidence, not supplying evidence, this this is not objectionable according to, you know, the reigning the reigning ideology. I remember that one of the funniest, uh, speaking of emotionality, one of the funniest uh, accusations, there's a gay uh, professor who said that you said that somebody should not be forced to have a gay roommate if they don't want one, right? And he says this was, he was extremely distressed. First, did this happen? Can you, you know, talk about this? Because it's strange that some of these accusations are from fellow, fellow faculty. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I don't know who this professor is. I've not given any sense of when I said this. Oh, I no, re- it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it says his name. It's right here. Uh, stating while on a panel with openly gay faculty colleague Tobias Wolf. That, Tobias uh, Wolf, right. Well, here, here was the thing. Before Obergefell, this was years and years ago, I was invited to a number of panels in which my brief was to give the best arguments against recognizing gay marriage, okay, uh, and a broad sense of gay rights. That's what I was asked to do, right? I mean, that may be ancient history, but it's true. And, you know, some of the things I said, which I had written about, because I had written an article about the secular case against gay marriage, uh, would today, you know, fast forward be regarded as offensive and hurtful and all this sort of thing. But at the time, people were actually engaging in a give and take on the pros and cons of a lot of these issues that are now kind of regarded as completely closed and slam dunk. You know, it is childish, it is immature, and it is primitive to judge an argument by whether you personally find it hurtful and offensive. I mean, is that the sole criterion by which we judge the merits of any given objection, position, policy? I, no, I mean, that's, that's absurd. That's absurd. <laughs> yeah. Why is that an indictment of what someone says? I would just question that. Well, Where is the, written? Yeah. Well, according to this, it made him feel distressed. And well, she was striking. She would hold that forth. She said, "While sitting with me, she would say that." That that's that that's that's the core of his argument. They they quote this guy. There's quotation marks. So, did you actually did you read the whole letter that they sent about you? Uh, well, yes. I don't remember every detail. Of it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I find most of it absurd because here's what it boils down to, Richard. I was upset by what she said. That is the only criterion that needs to be considered. Yeah. Fire her. I mean, that is in some what this letter is about. And, you know, as I've said to certain people, I'm upset all the time by what people say to me, by what I read in Pravda, a.k.a. the New York Times, you know, by what gets said in presentations at the law school. But it never occurs to me to say, well, the person who said it needs to be fired. Why does my offense not count for anything? Yeah, I think that's I think that's you're absolutely you're absolutely right. 
I, I never would contend that my offense is the sole criterion by which we judge whether someone is employable in the academy. Of course, people are going to be offended by positions that they don't agree with. So, yeah, this makes me think. So I had an essay called Women's Tears Win in the Marketplace of Ideas. I don't know if you, if you saw yeah, it. I've read it. Yeah. So how much do you, how much do you think this is sort of – because I, I would go with these cases and I would look at these videos of these people coming after professors. And it was like, you know, you'd see the headline, students do X. It's like – it's not students. It's, it's 10 women. It's just it's just women, right? You're, you're blaming all students. To what extent is you know do you see uh, uh, sort of the uh, the the shift in the sort of the atmosphere in the universities um, resulting from uh, from female activism versus the you know the student body as a whole? Well, I mean, I'm on the record as saying that the feminization of the academy has been a total disaster. Okay, because. What it has meant is that the values of the nursery and the kindergarten have now been elevated to the paramount considerations and the old traditional um, and traditionally masculine values of truth seeking, uh, of argumentation, of reason and evidence and objectivity um, have been downgraded. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we need to open these institutions to women. Uh, and I think fundamental fairness provides a very strong basis for doing that. Uh, you know, we should open these institutions to talent, whatever form it takes. And that applies also to different ethnicities and different races, but it's quite another to say, well, now we're going to let, um, the, the interests of women or the values that women, uh, you know, elevate, uh, we're going to, to sort of let those become the paramount guiding values. We're going to displace all of the old practices and all of the old touchstones in favor of these. I mean, that wasn't part of the deal. That shouldn't be part of the deal. And, you know, you say, well, women's tears rule the day. Well, that just begs the question of why men let women's tears rule the day. There was a time, wasn't that long ago, all right, where men said to women, I'm sorry, but if you think that the values of the nursery and the kindergarten of, you know, making everybody feel good and included and warm and yummy, uh, that those are going to become the paramount values uh, the reigning values of the academy. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, no, we're we are not going to give into that. We are going to resist that. We have good and sufficient reason for um, for pushing back because over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of struggle and and you know uh, and analysis and effort, we have developed these post enlightenment standards. And we have them for good and sufficient reason. They have yielded all the great achievements and accomplishments of civilization. We believe in them. Uh, we are uh, willing to defend them. And we're not going to let you defeat them. In other words, why are men not standing up to women? They used to. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, and one I've thought a lot about. I mean, I see these, yeah, I see these men and, you know, they're, they're just to live in fear. I mean, I feel guilty. If why I have are you something... afraid of women? Why are they, it's, I ask the same question. Why are we afraid of black students? Well, why are 
know, why are we not willing to take charge and you know do our job and say to them, no, you cannot engage in emotional blackmail. Emotional blackmail is, you know, degrading and debasing and it's decadent. And you're trying to destroy what we've built over hundreds of years. We're not going to let you. Yeah. I mean, did, did men, I mean, if you went up to a, a group of men, say, I don't know, a long time ago, decades ago, and you were a woman and you started, you know, crying, I think the natural instinct, even at the time, say the 1950s would have been, you know, to feel some kind of sympathy and say, okay, you know, whatever you want, you, you win the argument. I think it's a, it's a trope of sort of a, a popular culture that, you know, women complain or women nag, women cry, men sort of just let let them get their way um but you know you couldn't imagine someone from the 1950s say well you couldn't imagine the women i think having the nerve to say okay now you can't have free speech um now these people can't express their ideas and maybe it's maybe it's the women maybe men would have always submitted to women women just had never had the nerve to say you know everything we think you know should be uh, however we feel should basically govern every institution in the country Right. And we're going to change the standards. We're going to change the touchstones and the criteria because we have this kind of alternative feminist way of knowing or whatever, you know, that nonsense is. Uh, and you have to accept it. We are going to impose it on you. Well, you know, you can only impose something on people that they allow to be imposed upon them. And that is the part that I just have never understood why men don't fight back. Um, I mean, it's one thing to let tears rule in the private realm or in the family or whatever, but it's quite another to, you know, sanction this kind of invasion uh, in what were traditionally masculine realms uh, and which men, you know, in which men built something very valuable that they ought to be defending. Mm. Yeah, I had a review. Yeah, I had a review for um, uh, Claremont Review of Books by this article by this guy named uh, uh, I, forget, I forget his name. He wrote a book called um, I can't remember this. Hanania Claremont. I'm just going to Google myself and see. Uh, it was by um, a famous journalist named Ah oh, Jonathan Jonathan Rauch. The Constitution of Knowledge, right? And so this uh, yeah. this guy is a uh, he's a liberal. He wrote for like he used to write or still writes for the New Republic. And his book was about we have to stand up for Western civilization, Western values. Um, I know him he well. Went, he's a very smart guy. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm sure he is. So, but my my critique of the book was, I mean, it's basically that you know he'll say things like you know these institutions like science and capitalism have been handed down to us. They come from. Uh, um, you know, they come from these people who happen to be white and they happen to be men, right? That has nothing to do with it. Now it's open to everybody. And, you know, others should, you know, partake in it and, you know, not have these, you know, leftist Marxist values or or whatever. And I, I just I just found that such a you know, such a cop out that it's just, you know, because you're going to be, you're, if you take that perspective, you're going to be very confused if Jonathan Rauch gets his way um and these institutions uphold free speech and uphold to meritocracy. Well, you know, there's not going to be gender balance. There's not going to be racial balance. And then, and then what do you say to that? You're always vulnerable if you're afraid of, you know, acknowledging these differences and the whole thing, just the whole thing just falls apart. You can't, you just have to, you just have to reject the paradigm that you, you expect or need or want representation. If it happens, great. If there's some ethnic group that does particularly well and, you know, uh, can, can compete on equal terms, fine. But no reason to expect that for between every group, and especially the sexes. I mean, this, I, that's why I, I find there's just some, some, something sort of empty about people who who go halfway. When I look at you; you're like you're like me. You're you're sort of willing to go all the way and say, "No, we have to acknowledge these differences and and be okay with them." 
Yeah, well, I think you're making a related point. I mean, you know, the first point we were exploring was, uh, you know, when women and minorities come in, uh, are the people who previously controlled these institutions, are should they acquiesce? Why do they acquiesce in the transformation of the standards and understandings and protocols that govern these institutions, which are now considered, you know, white male supremacy and, you know, somehow suspect. But I think you've now segued to another interesting point, which is related, which is one of the reasons in which there's been an attempt to change the standards and the meritocracy and the protocols is because if we retain those old touchstones, we will not have equal outcomes and we will not have equal representation in of you know either of women or minorities for different reasons. I mean, for minorities, the problem is once again this achievement gap, this ability gap, which is very awkward and embarrassing. Uh, if, for example, if we maintain an objective meritocracy to the extent that we can, it's never perfect, but my position is we should try to do it, you know, to, to the maximum extent possible, uh, then we are not going to have proportional representation of all groups because as things currently stand, groups are differently abled, so to speak, you know, for whatever reason, without even going into the reason this just the way it is. So that's the problem when it comes to, you know, racial representation. When it comes to women, um, you know, ability isn't as big a factor, although on the right tail of the bell curve, I think it does become a factor. And that's, that's a sensitive subject in itself. There are more male geniuses than there are female geniuses for, I think, a mixture of cognitive and uh, personality related reasons drive-related reasons, ambition-related reasons. Um, but you're going to have institutions and, and, and standards and activities that are not as attractive to women, where women don't feel you know, as comfortable or as included uh, as men do. Um, and you're not going to get proportional representation of women. So women are adamant that they want, you know, it to be 50-50 or even more than 50-50. They have no problem with the idea of women being an outsized presence in the academy. But in order to make that happen spontaneously, they, uh, they believe that the academy has to change, um, that the kind of rigorous hierarchical conventions, so to speak, of the academy are keeping women out somehow or yeah. driving women out. So, you know, I have somebody I talked to who's a, um, who's a tenured professor at a major uh, university, uh, you know, Ivy League, not Ivy League. No, it's, it's on the West Coast. It's not, it's not, that's not Ivy League, but, you know, very elite school. And, you know, I talk, <laughs> yeah, something Hello. like that. Okay. Yeah. What a, a very, a very well, well regarded school on the West Coast. And, um, you know, he, you know, he, I, I was having sort of a debate with him because he wants to, you know, organize faculty, try to sort of fight the university from within. And, you know, my attitude, my attitude is more, I think you just have to sort of give up on it. Now I wouldn't give up on the law schools. The law schools are very important because federal judges, I mean, and, and regulators come from the law schools. Um, but you know, political, you know, economics, I probably wouldn't give that up either, but you know, most of the rest of the academy 
you know, I just think it's it's too far gone. And if you want sort of to do good research and you want to, you know, get your ideas out there, you know, th- there's there's ways to do that. There's ways. There's think tanks. There's you know, uh, you know, private funders. I, you know, I've made the independent path work. Um, just you know, what, what thoughts do you have about how much the academy is worth fighting for and worth saving, and how much people should just you know give up on it? Well, I can certainly understand the impulse of giving up on the academy because it is terribly far gone. I I was just talking to a a very prominent attorney the other day, and he was talking about the legal profession. He says, it is so bad now, the kind of woke takeover. He says, it's even worse than you think. I said, it couldn't possibly be worse than I think, because (laughs) as bad as it is, I know how bad it is. Okay. But I feel that way about the academy. But there are sort of two problems with giving up on the academy. Um, and it may be that it's, you know, we, we have to give up on it uh, and, and have to circumvent it. But that's a whole nother discussion. Um, one is that, you know, when you say, well, we can't give up on the law schools and we can't give up on economics, you're leaving out and we can't give up on science. I mean, the whole scientific establishment is going woke so rapidly, it will make your head spin, especially the Medical Research Academy is just what's happened there is is stunning and frightening okay i have family members who are uh professors in medical schools and uh the takeover has been absolute the prioritization of diversity equity and inclusion over things like you know curing disease doing basic scientific investigation as shown in funding in you know grant getting and grantsmanship and who they're hiring and who they're promoting and who they're admitting to medical schools i mean so many medical schools now have these blatantly illegal special tracks for minority students penn my own medical school just announced that you know for historically black uh college students they're they're going to uh, you, the MCAT, they don't have to take it. They don't have to submit it. I, I, I'm not kidding. This is really happening. All right. I, I mean, if anybody would challenge this in court, you know, I think the result should be obvious. Um, so it's very hard to cabin, you know, and hive off that part of the academy that's supposedly innocuous and leave the rest of it intact. That's not happening. The second reason that what's happening in the university should be of great concern and, you know, have the alarm bells ringing. And here I am very disappointed with Republicans, Republican legislators to not see this as a national emergency because it is, is that, you know, these elite schools seed the economy. What happens in the university does not stay there, right? They are now uh, in control of entertainment, of publishing, of corporations, of nonprofits, of journalism, of the media. I mean, of every sector in the economy that you can think of is being seeded by these young people that have been indoctrinated in woke precepts. And many of them have never heard an alternative point of view. 
What about what about what about containment? I mean, you have fewer people go to college, starve them of resources. I saw a optimistic article on NBC. It was you know NBC News. It was portraying it as a very bad development, but fewer and fewer young people, particularly in red states, are going to college. Not just controlling for population, but look at number of eighteen to twenty year olds who are enrolling in college. It's down from where it was um, five ten years ago. Apparently, um, why not? Why not sort of try to accelerate those trends? I think there was a. I think Tennessee did something like they would not give you student aid. Um, they would if you wanted to study STEM, but not if you wanted to study, I think, social science or right. some, something like that. But yeah. What about just trying to just make the universities less important? Well, I mean that is already happening, and it's got a gender inflection to it in that you know most schools now, except for the very very elite who have the pick of the litter, um, they are predominantly female. Of course, I've, I'm about to write a piece that shows that this is a disaster, not only for the university, but for family formation, because women really like to marry up and there are fewer, fewer men to marry. So that's that's not a good thing. Um, but, yeah, I think the way to do that, to circumvent these institutions is to, you know, starve them, starve the beast. I mean, to defund them. And But in order to do that, you really need two things to happen. One is the alumni need to stop giving money, and there is no sign that they're doing that. And that is just so frustrating because, you know, these universities' PR establishments are just diabolical. They, uh, they are making out like everything's just fine. It's really wonderful. You know, we're, we're producing these terrific people who are versed in diversity and they're creative and they're innovative and they're, they're competent and they're smart and, you know, all of that and people buy into it. Uh, so the alumni are shoveling money and rich people and donors at these elite institutions until that stops. I don't know how much progress we're going to make. Um, the second thing is, this is why, with all their flaws, we need Republican administrations and Republican control of Congress. And we need leadership, all right? People like uh, Youngkin and DeSantis, who are going to take charge of the Department of Education and say, um, we know that you're discriminating on the basis of race like crazy. No more money, all right? Uh, we're cutting it off tomorrow until you prove that you're not doing that. I mean, wouldn't that be a bold move? The second thing I'm in favor of is Congress passing a law like Title VI, which has no race discrimination if you accept federal money, that says you have to adhere to First Amendment principles if you're going to accept federal money. And I think if that were enforced and taken seriously, once again, by the Department of Education, um, then that would work wonders, you know, that would really help. It wouldn't be uh, a problem, but it would mm, help. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry about the implications for religious schools. So if religious schools have this, uh, you know, doctor schools, you know, I mean, there are ways around all of this. Uh, I think there are ways to, to sort of deal with this. Um, you could design laws that would help. I'm not saying they would solve the problem because the problem with universities is that the people in charge are self-perpetuating. They are the gatekeepers for the next generation. So as you pointed out earlier, you know, they are going to be very vigilant in not hiring people who have the wrong opinions. They want to keep conservatives out. Uh, but think about it. That means that the views that, you know, most people hold are now banned from the academy. I mean, we have 
the academy as this enclave of the opinions held by 8% of the population. Well, you know, because you generate some of this data, right? Um, so there's no magical solution, but I think starving the beast, um, cutting off the funding, uh, finding ways around needing a university degree. Now, I think the real hard nut to crack here is the elite universities who only graduate about four or five percent, you know, the so-called selective or competitive universities of the people who get a four-year degree. So schools that accept, let's say, less than a third of their applicants are a remarkably tiny percentage uh, in, just in terms of the number of people coming out of them, uh, of college graduates. So these schools have enormous cachet, uh, enormous outside pow outsized power for uh, entree to the upper middle class and the ruling class. Um, and as long as there is this fetish among, you know, high-flying finance firms and corporations and prestigious positions in journalism and the like for Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, it's very, very hard to uh, make inroads into the power of these institutions. Um, it's interesting because I just read a brief in the Harvard case, this is the Harvard Affirmative Action case that's going to be heard before the Supreme Court next term. Yeah, that I was, was just going to ask you how, how important how important is it? Because what you sound like what you want to do with the First Amendment, that seems like what they you could get an interpretation of Title VI that says no more racial discrimination. Um, well, right. So, how, yeah, so go ahead. So the question is how much good would that do, right? Um I have a contingent of friends who say no good whatsoever. I mean, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton will find a way around it. They will um, drop the SATs. They will uh, dilute the meritocracy. They will obscure the fact that they have double standards, you know, blatant double standards, academic double standards for different groups. Um, they will get what they want. Okay, so there is that contingent. Um, there are other people who think that this will actually have bite. But, you know, apart from whether the Harvard case will really make a difference, there is this interesting brief that was f filed in the Harvard case by a group of prominent businesses. And here's what it said. It said, oh, we need affirmative action uh, because we need to recruit from schools that have a diverse student body uh, because they make better decisions, make better employees. You know, they're trying to beef up this whole notion that diversity doesn't just have pedagogical value, but it has business value. It has economic value. Well, they're trying to soften the court up for the idea that diversity in hiring is okay too, which, you know, their educational affirmative action cases don't imply at all, but leaving that aside, and therefore, you should retain affirmative action for these elite institutions. Well, what's the answer to that, Richard? The answer is very simple. If you want a more diverse workforce, if we abolish affirmative action, just go to other schools. You know, so you can't recruit at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Big friggin' deal. I mean, why do you have to have those institutions be your HR department? The students are what they are. They're as able as they are. The fact that they're going to 
University of North Carolina at Greensboro or whatever, as opposed to Yale, how does that make a difference? You know, go to Howard, go to other places, go to the places where blacks would get in on a colorblind basis and recruit them there. Now, of course, they would say, well, we need the white students at Harvard and Yale, and we need to expose them to diversity because that makes them better employees. Well, you can get white students at these other places too, you know. I mean, the snob value here is just unbelievable. And of course, the implicit myth is that if you take a given student of given ability and you send them to Harvard, that they'll somehow come out smarter and better and more capable than if they go to a school where they're well-matched. Like, there's zero evidence for that. Zero. Yeah. And so- In fact, yeah. evidence of the opposite, because there's, there's data from Duke that suggests that if Majority students are overplaced. That is, you know, they go to a school where they wouldn't get in otherwise, that they tend to drop out of hardcore majors more often. They learn less at these schools where they're overplaced through affirmative action than they would if they went to a school they would otherwise get into. So we have all of these kind of myths, these these preening assumptions. Uh, that make it very hard to undermine the power of these institutions. I mean, your ideas are as good as mine about how we're going to do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've written, I've written and thought a bit about this. Uh, let me just uh, uh, switch gears a little bit because I was listening this morning to your uh, conversation with Glenn Lowry, the one I think that got you in the, in the most trouble from uh, late 2021. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people will... Uh, um, you make an argument that I, I think some people, you know, um, some people think, but not a lot of people say. So you're worried about Asian immigration, and it's different from, you know, other sort of minority problems that people are used to talking about. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Like, what's the, what's the concern with Asian immigration if they're doing socioeconomically well? Well, yeah, they are doing socioeconomically well. Um, that's for sure. I mean, you know, low crime rates. Uh, high educational achievement, strong families, and all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I, had, I had had an interchange with George Lee, who's a friend of mine on the Substack. That's what got me in trouble. The first topic we took up is why do Asians vote for Democrats, uh, given that Democrats are pledged to destroy the meritocracy, which is you know, creates the ladder that enables Asians to rise and succeed. Why would they want to uh, pull that ladder down? Um, I have no ready explanation for that. Um, I think that the Democrats are advancing all sorts of pernicious and destructive policies. And so I'm not too keen on seeing more Democratic voters coming into the country. So one of the things I said is, you know, if, if Asians continue to vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, I mean, there has been a little bit of a move away from that, but not much, you know, the data, you know, that's one reason to not be in favor of this sort of vast influx of, of Asians. I mean, I really would rather see Republicans elected, frankly. Yeah. What if, what um, if Hispanics keep moving Republican now that they're almost even? Some some polls they they they, they disapprove of Biden more than whites. What if the, what if that shift continues and they become they become Republican? Would that be a good reason to support Hispanic immigration? Well, there is some movement in that direction, but if you step back and look overall at the percentage of Asians that vote 
Democrat versus Republican is still overwhelmingly Democrat. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm saying the, the so you have a friends. very long way to go, a yeah. very, very long way to go. Um, and, you know, on, on Tucker, I was also criticizing what I think is a very opportunistic attitude that some Asians have, especially South Asians for some reason, um, who tend to be at the barricades supporting diversity, inclusion and equity programs when, in fact, they're wildly successful. I don't know why they keep trying to paint the United States as some kind of racist country uh, when there's no evidence that they've been victimized by racism. So that's, that's a little bit disturbing too. But also, you know, the fact is Asian culture is very different from our culture. Uh, it just is. It's, it's not a post-enlightenment culture. It's not a Western culture. Uh, it, it is not a, a sort of liberty focused culture. It is a conformist culture. These are broad generalizations. I understand that. And there are, of course, exceptions in every population. Um, but, you know, critical masses of people from certain backgrounds do change the culture. It's interesting. I don't know if you follow a website called Education Realist. I've seen um, it. Yeah. A teacher who writes a lot about education. And he says, well, I can tell you one thing, you know, a huge influx of Asians into a particular school changes the educational culture. It results in a laser focus on test scores. And, you know, I'm all for tests and I think tests are significant. Um, but a laser focus on test scores and gaming tests and doing well on tests, uh, that does shift the culture of a school. And ironically, we now see white flight out of schools that are dominated by Asians because whites don't necessarily share the mix of values about education that Asians do. Now we can argue all day about, you know, which is better, which is good, which is bad, um, what the upsides are and the downsides. But the point I'm making is uh, there are culturally distinct traits for people from different countries, cultures, backgrounds. And when you have a large number of people coming in from a particular culture, it does shift the existing culture. I mean, that's just a fact. And, and people ought to be talking about that. I mean, it is not illegitimate to say, you know, we want to go slow on immigration because we don't want drastic changes. We like the culture that we have. We like the country the way it is. We don't want to see it change. Those people are not presumptively evil people. I mean, that's kind of like what Trump was saying in a way. That's what he appealed to. I know you can't say anything good about Trump now. I understand that. Um, that's forbidden. That's forbidden. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of people who like to be around people like themselves who don't want to see their country turn into a polyglot boarding house. Those people deserve to be heard. Well, what, Amy, what about, I mean, when you talk about the school change, I mean, I'm a big fan of school choice. I'm a big fan of freedom of association. I mean, so 
you know, why not, why not work out, you know, the, the, just the, the, you know, the idea that, you know, Asians, I think you have to sort of break them up into different categories. I, I see the Indian representation in DEI. East Asians seem to be massive. They punch massively below their weight as far as country, cultural influence, given their socioeconomic status. You know, I, I don't see them really, you know, I think you're right. They are conformists, but that makes them sort of not as, not as culturally relevant. So, you know, I sort of see a, a lot of groups like this, especially East Asians as sort of able to go um in any any direction um but yeah i mean well, you know what what about just you know the old you know sort of conservative ideas of school choice freedom of association i, I think that goes a long way to solving a lot of these problems doesn't it well you know i'm all for freedom of association i'm a big freedom of association fan just as you are um and i would deregulate you know all of the laws that force people together who don't want to be together uh, you know, as you might. But here's the problem, Richard. Our culture is moving in exactly the opposite direction. The ruling class, the people in power, especially the people, the sort of people with cultural power on the left, the lefties who, uh, you know, control all the opinion-shaping institutions, they hate freedom of association, except when they're summering in Nantucket or whatever. Uh, you know, they never talk about it. They, in fact, of course, are are fleeing diversity even more than anyone else. But, you know, they they profess to love it and to see it as the paramount value. And therefore, any rules for the little people, right, that allow them to choose, self-segregate, um, you know, uh, get away from the people they want to get away from you know, be with the people they want to be with, uh, those are not going to fly. Um, so you're really asking for a very countercultural project here. Uh, and I just don't see it happening. Yeah. I mean, stopping, you know, the flow of people across borders, given the economic incentives, I think is also a, a sort of very difficult thing too. And, you know, I think the freedom of association thing is, you know, is, is good to do anyway, because it's, I think it solves, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these problems. Um, the, no, we uh, see that issue differently. I mean, I from having read your your stuff and followed your Twitter and and you know your Substack, I know that you're um, not as enamored of of you know national identity borders uh, nationhood as I am for sure. And I I get that. I understand that. Um, but I really think that. The ordinary people, the little people, the common people—they care about this stuff. They really care about. Well, it. I, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, they do. But but the but the. I mean, if you look at the sort of the the sort of where the antagonisms are in this country. I mean, I think the people like rural white Americans. I think they hate liberal elites, you know, more than they dislike, you know, any being around any immigrant group. So, uh, you know, I get that people want to be around those, you know, who are like themselves. But you know, we we have this, you know, it's sort of to talk about this common American culture. I mean, I just see. You know, I, I I don't have much in common with liberals. I think they're the craziest people on earth. I mean, give me a, a person who just arrived here from Guatemala. As far as you know, my, my values they they they, are, they do not believe in you know gender uh, fluidity. They don't believe that criminals are good. So you know, it's it's for to me. I mean, I agree with you know we, we're sort of on the same page with a lot of these cultural critiques. Um, you know, I just see the people who are running this culture the most distant people in the world from me. So it's hard for me to get sort of a uh, uh, you know uh, uh, concerned about these immigrants arriving who in many ways seem better, actually. 
I understand that. And there are a lot of people who uh, agree with you. I, I see the country as, and here, this is both a positive point and a normative point, uh, less and less, I think, a positive point because our country has become so much more diverse very, very rapidly, which, by the way, is a choice, uh, not an inevitability. But I see the importance of the kind of Western European stamp in this country, and especially the kind of Anglo-European stamp and our traditions as incredibly important to our character, to our success, um, to, you know, why our government works, why our country works. Take a factor, I'll, I'll mention a factor I think is routinely underestimated, low corruption. Low corruption is exclusively almost exclusively a Northern European and Anglo phenomenon, okay? Uh, it, it virtually doesn't exist in any other part of the globe. I mean, a little bit in Central Europe, it's kind of Teutonic, uh, as well as Nordic and Anglo. And it is of outsized importance in why those countries, you know, are as wonderful as they are and why those countries can have nice things and why they're so successful, and why everybody wants to go to them, okay? And we, of course, inherited that low corruption trait. That doesn't mean we were perfect and had no corruption, but relatively speaking, until recently, we've done pretty well with good government and civically-minded, other-directed government, because that was our, um, we've inherited that, you know? Those are the traditions that we've taken from our founding and our origins. And to see those diluted, I am very frightened that they are going to be diluted when we have influxes, large influxes of people from places where corruption is endemic. Okay? I already see it happening. We are, we are turning from a first world country into a third world country in so many ways that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, and that, you know, it's, it's suspect to talk about that you can get into trouble for talking about, I get into trouble, but I really think that this is a really important thing and it means preserving, protecting and defending what we have, keeping, you know, tight, a tight lid on immigration, not letting any one group or any third world group certainly get too large and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about this when I was listening to you talk to uh, Glenn Lowry. Ed, when you talk about, um, the, you know, sort of the continuity of Western civilization, you know, a thought that popped into my head is, you know, we say things like, well, this is why Western countries are so great. And a part of me thinks, well, maybe there was this culture that, you know, produced the Industrial Revolution and, you know, brought America, say, up to the 1950s. Um, but maybe the people who live here now, you know, the legacy Americans, are just sort of chugging along based on what, you know, these much wiser and better people built um, long ago. So, I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. So I, I, my family is a Middle Eastern immigrant. So like the extended family, the idea that anyone would have a child out of wedlock, the 
unth- unthinkable, right? Um, I look at, you know, my friends grew up, they all grew up with, you know, divorced parents or parents um, who never married, or a lot, at least a lot of them did. And, you know, my, a lot of my older relatives, they, they, they sort of, their idea of America was like Westerns and like Elvis, and they really liked this stuff. And they're like, oh, you know, this is great. And they came to America, you know, they saw some of their younger people, the different generations get into drugs. And they were like, you know, what, what is this? You know, they, so I, a part of me, a part of me thinks that, you know, like if you look at something like out of wedlock birth rates, right? If you look at something like divorce rates, if you look at something like attitudes towards sexuality, a lot of immigrants are closer to the America of the 1950s than Americans of 2020s are to the Americans of 1950s. So maybe, maybe the Western, maybe it's gone. Maybe it's gone. Maybe this great thing. We're just we're living off you know three percent growth based on those old institutions. But you know, there's got to be something new because the the continuity has just been broken. Will, there's so much to what you're saying. I mean, there is so much to what you're saying. Maybe my problem is I just don't know what time it is. Right? I mean, we, we've just passed the peak. And, and of course, the people in charge have let it happen. Uh, there are people like Patrick Deneen who say the seeds of destruction are sown in our very kind of liberal commitments that we've allowed this decadence to occur. And it is definitely occurring. Uh, what you say about, you know, it's unthinkable to have a child out of wedlock. I mean, that's the way it used to be in my Jewish upbringing. It, it was literally the word is unthinkable. I mean, you would just never do it. Right. And to a certain extent, that's still true. That's one aspect of, you know, our traditional culture. But there are others. There's this weird mix of kind of creativity and stability of dynamism and traditionalism, this wonderful, delicate balance that we had during our heyday, and I'm very nostalgic about the, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Maybe that period has passed, and uh, you know, West is is not what it used to be, and it's not gonna be what it used to be for all sorts of reasons. And we are gonna have to accept uh, some kind of successor population to kind of riff off uh, a Wesley Yang successor successor ideology. It doesn't mean it's going to be as good or better. I think it's going to be worse, frankly, because I think this was kind of a unique, magical moment in the history of the world that we achieved um, these pinnacles. And I don't know how we're going to, you know, reproduce that. Uh, I'm very worried that we won't. You know, the Jews have a saying, push cart to push cart in three generations. Uh, And there is that. Uh, I think. The Jews are emblematic of that. I mean, they really had their heyday, and now, like, they've faded from the professions. They've they're gone from, um, you know, academia. Where are they? I mean, maybe they're just not reproducing, or they've, you know, as I said, I'm indicted for saying they diluted their brand by intermarrying. Well, well, some of them are. Some of them are reproducing a lot. I mean, some of them in, uh, you know, these Orthodox right. communities yeah. are, are really off the charts. Yeah, it's hard to. You know, it's hard to control these things. You know, I, like immigration restriction. I think I could be more open to it in a country like Hungary or Japan. It's like you know, it's it, you know, like the, the, the horse hasn't left. You know, the what is the saying? The horse hasn't left the barn. You know, whatever whatever they right. say. You know, they still have. He hasn't you know, been turned into the boat, as the uh, Chinese say. But he, listen to what you're saying. I mean, this is very interesting. You're saying, well, it's too late for the United States to be like Hungary or Israel or Austria or Denmark. You know, or Japan, of course, you know, keep them out, preserve your culture, preserve your demographic and all of that. But, you know, just 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 
our country was literally more than 90% white. I mean, we, it's the 1964 Immigration Act, the Hart Seller Act, that opened the floodgates, and that act was was catastrophic. I mean, you know, this was something people did. In our opinion of whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, I don't think on balance what that Immigration Act ended up doing, which was never anticipated, is at the end of the day going to be good for our country on balance. There are good aspects. There's a certain economic dynamism that has been introduced. But you have to ask yourself, is that dynamism just the dynamism of certain people displacing others? Um, would we have that dynamism if we'd never had that immigration act? I mean, you know, our, our salad days, our heyday was from 20, 1924 to 1964 when we had almost no immigration. I think it's unfair to say that those were, you know, bad years for our country. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the heart, you know, the heart seller thing is interesting because what, you know, you think about the distinction between U.S. and these other countries. And I think the, you know, the, the battles that were going on with the South and with, you know, they, they were, they, they stayed dormant for a while. I mean, you had the, you had the Civil War, but you were getting a white verse. You were getting a replay of the Civil War again, I think, over the civil rights movement. I mean, I think that the whites, whites in the North were uh, very excited about, you know, doing something about the plight of blacks. And I think there was going to be inevitable tensions there. So you're right. I mean, I think that you know we was it was already sort of a divided country. I think you had this uh, you had these north south you had these north south you know uh, urban rural differences that were going that were bound to blow up anyway. Um, but then the you know the the immigration the, you know the, they, they opened the borders and you know even though it was you know the you know this country was ninety percent white you know fifty years ago. Well, I mean now it's I mean it, it doesn't matter the the temporal distance. Right, so it was hundred years ago. Now you know. I think half of kids born um, are non-white in this country. Um, so it's, it's you know, it's a, now you're arguing in immigration, you're arguing over, you know, whether you're going to be 50.2% white or 41.6% white in, in 50 years. You know, it, it's not, I don't think it's as big of a question, those demographic questions, than if Japan opens a border. Japan goes from 99 Japanese to 90 to 85. That's a much bigger deal than the U.S. goes from 48 to 38 because it's already a polyglot. I mean, it's already a diverse nation and we're sort of going to have to figure out how to make it work. Well, I mean, sure. I get your point. I take your point. It's like the horse is out of the barn. But, you know, the thing is, are you saying that diversity is good or diversity is something we have to accept? And I mean, if you say it's something we have to accept, well, if let me go back. If you say in itself, why not impose it on Japan? Why not say, well, Denmark, you know, you you should open your borders. If if you believe in open borders, why are you making exceptions for these places? You can't have it both ways. Well, yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not for open borders. I'm more of a you know pragmatic, and I sort of take every country on its own terms. As far as whether diversity is good or bad, I, I don't like that framing because it really depends on the context. So uh, Ron Ron Unz has written about you know there were some uh, cities in. Um, uh, the the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, where they became more diverse because the Hispanics displaced uh, African Americans and the crime rate, you know, plummeted. So in certain situations, you know, the, the places became diverse and they they became better. Um, you know, if I want, you know, if it's a swing state and you know I, I want the Republicans to win, you know, influx of Asians might be bad. Influx of Asians might be good in another situation. So I, I think it's just to say diverse. I mean, there's I think the group matters and I think the context matters. I think to break it down into you know diversity is good or diversity is bad. I think it, it's it's too simplistic 
um, in either direction, you know. So I, you know, I'm interested in diversity is a fact of it's gonna there's gonna be some continuum of diversity we're gonna have, um, depending on what immigration uh, is gonna be 20, 30 years. You know, when you talk about like these Asians and their um their wokeness, it's not the first generation, right? It's the second generation. And so like an immigrant who comes here today is gonna have a kid, maybe when they're 30. 30 years down the line, they will become a DEI commissar. Well, if we're if 30 years down the line, we still have DEI commissars. I mean, we're in trouble. I think, I think we need to be focused on how to, how to sort of displace these evil ideas. And, you know, the, I think the immigrants will, I think the immigrants will go along with whatever the dumb, even people in third world. I mean, it's amazing. Like you, you look at Europe and you look at, um, you look at, uh, uh, you know, these places that have BLM rallies who don't have any black people. And I just, I'm in awe of American cultural hegemony. So I'm not, I'm not worried about, you know, immigrants are going to become more like Americans. I think they are. I think becoming, I think we need to sort of think about how they don't assimilate into the bad stuff and just bring out what's best in our culture. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe well, that's all. Because they are assimilating to the bad stuff. That's, you know, the, the first generation of Hispanics have low crime rates, the second generation, not so much third generation, Less so. So you have to sort of follow people out for the generations. But I think, you know, stepping back on this issue, it's a very, as you concede and you're right, 100% right, you know, to talk about diversity generally is kind of stupid because the devil is in the details, right? But that's the problem. What we have now is a ruling class ideology, which is absolutely committed to this dogma from which there is no dissent which is diversity is always good. It's an unalloyed good. It's a wonderful, uh, you know, just a, a glorious thing. Uh, we all have to embrace it. We all have to love it. And there can be no such thing as, hey, you know, uh, can we just, you know, hit the pause button? Uh, can we kind of step back and maybe try to deal with the immigration surge that we've had over the past few years, try to keep things the way they are, more or less. Um, nobody is, is you know, advocating for that position, even though it's one that appeals to a fair number of people in this country. I mean, that's just shut out of received opinion. It's certainly shut out of the universities. Um, if you participate in any discussions on this topic in universities, there is one and only one point of view. Okay, so uh, I would I would actually question that because I think there are downsides as well as upsides, unquestionably. And I think ordinary people's feelings and intuitions, you know, their uh, oikophilia as opposed to oikophobia, their desire for you know, familiarity, stability, sameness, um, traditional uh, cultural touchstones uh, and understandings that those shouldn't be denigrated. They deserve some hearing. That's all. You know, I, I understand we don't not completely in agreement on this and it's a matter of degree. And it's also hard to know when I, I get kind of confused about this. Well, you know, now that all this has happened and we have a polyglot boarding house, like what next? What do we do next? You know, uh, do we shut it down? Do we pull back? Do we, you know, just allow it to continue? I, it's hard to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would like to see conservatives. I mean, I would like to see them 
you know, make make more of an effort. I mean, appealing, you know, the the, the, the people don't like being discriminated. Well, okay. Well, I mean, they do it in such a, I mean, they've, they've tried to do this outreach, but the outreach is basically some kind of cargo cult of the democratic thing. Well, you know, they would, they would, uh, you know, uh, appoint some uh, black guy to something, talk about our community, say the Democrats are, are the real racist. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a way to, to do this. For example, the, the, you know, the discrimination against Asian Americans, people don't like being discriminated against. People will flip on that if they, if they know, and that is raised in salience. So the fact that that's not more salient, that Republicans don't talk about, they don't talk about affirmative action, period. They should defend whites too, of course. Um, but the fact that this, they're not playing Chinese, you know, language, the RNC isn't buying Chinese language. Um, uh, the, the Asians are going even without that effort. I mean, they're, they're, they voted out the San Francisco um, school board. Um, and then, you know, you have these sort of, uh, um, you know, and, th- and then you have these, you know, these things like gender identity. I tell you, my I have an elderly re- relative who support liked Hillary Clinton for a while, and then I would tell her at some point in around 2010, you know, she supports gay rights, um, she supports gay marriage or something like that. And my relative would say, uh, no, she has a husband and daughter. Like, yeah, like of course, like she's a she's a right. adorable human being. Like she could have said, well, five years later. Um, this relative now there's there's no it's, there's no ambiguity about sort of the Democrats and the kind of identity politics they support and you know and then I, I you know they this person watches Fox News now and it's like is just buying you know every everything that's being sold by Tucker and Hannity um, and so the, you know the Republicans will not you know speak you know uh, you know, they'll, they'll say oh protect girls sports protect Title Nine but you really can there are some wedge issues here. Um, and they're good. They're not like, they're not demagoguery. I mean, I think they're appealing to conservative principles and, and positions that are true, um, that they could lean into, but, but they don't, you know, I'd like to see that effort being made. You teach a class on conservatism. So this is, of let course, me ask you this. I mean, do you think the Republicans could succeed in winning over a lot of, you know, immigrant ethnic types from various backgrounds by going, effectively going back to a kind of 1950s, 1960s assimilation to a dominant culture expectation, the kind that I grew up with, which was this notion that, you know, you come here and you take us as you find us, uh, you know, you have to, you're expected to adopt, not just in deed, but also in word to our fundamental um, commitments to capitalism, to strong families, to, um, you know, uh, conventional behaviors, to bourgeois values, to uh, the whole kind of Anglo-Protestant legacy that's at the core of our identity, um, to, you know, to, to hold the whole European identity, you have to try and be as much like us as you can. You don't have to stamp out every aspect of your cultural individuality, but you can't make a big deal out of them. In other words, just to put it more succinctly, we reject multiculturalism. We reject multiculturalism. I mean, do you think it's feasible for the Republican Party to really go back to that? I, I would think well, Amy, I mean, I would do the I would do the opposite. I would say no, don't assimilate. You stay like yourself. You have you believe in two genders. You hate criminals. You don't want your daughters to be sluts or have uh, you know kids out of wedlock. You don't want your kids to be gender fluid. I think it's sort of become more like us. You know, I think we're the problem. I think this is the fundamental thing. So I think there's a you know a, an alliance to be built by saying no, 
keep we're the real multicultural. Keep your keep your culture. Be like white conservative people who are like every other group in the world against these these freaks who run society. So I, I would almost do the opposite and see see if that works. I think the assimilation message is sort of incoherent because when people look at sort of assimilate, they say, what's the difference between my immigrant background and America? The biggest difference is, is sexuality, is the fact that drugs and tattoos and divorce and homosexuality and out of wedlock childbirth, all that stuff is accepted. When you say assimilate, but be conservative, it almost it's almost incoherent because that's not just not what we are anymore. Yeah, well, you're mostly talking about the whole gender sexuality valence, right? But it's, Where I, it's also it's also criminal. It's attitudes towards differences between men and women. Uh, it's you know marriage. It's sexual morality. It's criminality. I mean, it's the idea that you know you don't fetishize criminals. I mean, like say I said, you know, my family being out of wedlock, having an out of wedlock child, being a criminal, like that was like the big. It was like a you know something shame. You know, people just so law and order, law and order values. Yeah, you think yes. is one yeah. parameter. I mean, you know, another one would be racial politics, and and that's where I think the waters get really muddy, right? Um, you know, how how supportive will these immigrants be of, you know, the strong meritocratic colorblind principles? They ought to be strongly supportive of it, but I think there's a certain degree of ambivalence about it because many of them come from very statist. Uh, backgrounds where they think the government ought to, you know, ensure good outcomes and even equal outcomes and uh, provide a very, very strong safety net and provide for their population. So, you know, there are a lot of different parameters and a lot of different issues on which uh, the Republicans are not necessarily going to succeed in attracting these groups but but Amy, the, the white the white working class base of the Republicans does not like free markets either. I mean, they don't like the. You know, I understand. The, I understand. <laughs> you know, so I don't think the whites. They love can, government uh, handouts and yeah. you know uh, support for local industries and you know that that sort of stuff. That's that's definitely out there. So anyway, very complicated. I don't know the answers. Yeah, well, it's it's fun. Yeah, it's it's a uh, you know. I, I, of course, nostalgia is is probably <laughs> not terribly uh, productive at this point. But yeah, well, I. I I, mean, I appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate. I mean, I appreciate that. You know, you say, well, you know, you can't talk. I, I think it, it should it should be it should be all on on the table. You know, I think that. Um, yeah, you can you can have a different opinion on immigration. I mean, you can have a different opinion on like I would be fine. You know, you can you can be affirmative action. I would prefer quotas to. I think there's something so coercive about sort of the um, the not just shutting down the speech, but then leading it in a dishonest direction. We're not doing quotas. We're so, we're doing diversity. I mean, it's just like you have to do so much in order to avoid having the conversation. Sometimes it's better just to, just to have the conversation. If you disagree, um, fine. But, you know, I, I think there's just something, this is, I think, an underrated aspect of just how unhealthy this wokeness is. Yeah, no, I think we're coming around to the beginning again, because the conversation you and I just had, right, could not be had in academia today. I mean, there's this kind of pall of, of orthodoxy, this gray grim, arid pole of orthodoxy that's descended on, you know, the classroom and the extra uh, curricular uh, activities in it, where there's this stylized way that you talk about everything. Uh, and it's just really sterile and awful. Uh, and the students know it. They notice it. I mean, I have students regularly reaching out to me 
saying, you know, what do we do about this one-sided tilted education that we're getting? Especially if they take my conservatism class or whatever, they'll say things like, I can't believe I spent 16 expensive years not hearing, you know, the names that that you have on your, your syllabus, never having heard of Michael Oakeshott or Edmund Burke or, you know, Frederick Hayek or anything. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Uh, not only have they not read this stuff, in many cases, they don't even recognize the names. Uh, that's educational malpractice as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but when they ask me, like, what should we do about the culture war? I really don't have an answer for them because anybody who speaks up is taking a huge risk, I think. I mean, that's why it's called a war. Like, what about war? Don't you understand? People get hurt. Uh, and I can't, I can't guarantee that they, that they won't get hurt. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, you know, and, and also in war, I mean, there is, you know, institutions and, and power, but there's also a thing called morale. And sometimes, you know, groups that are badly outmatched, um, you know, if they believe in what they're doing and they keep going forward, um, you know, they can, they can do amazing things. And I, I get the feeling that you, you know, you, you couldn't act differently if you tried, like, you know, I, I was going to ask you, like, have you ever thought about toning it down a little? I, I didn't want to ask the question because I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the same way that the answer would be, it's never an option because I, I just can't. I, I sort of have to express myself on these issues. I feel the same way. Maybe it's the right strategy. Uh, maybe it's not. But the, but the morale factor matters a lot. And if we can inspire other people to you know think the same way, behave the same way, you know, I think I think we can do uh, great things. So um, yeah, it's it's. Um, I think that's that's about it, Amy. Is there um is there any place you want you know besides donating to your uh, fund? We'll we'll put a link to that. Is is there anything else people can find? Yes. You don't have a Substack or anything, do you? Uh, no, I really appreciate you having me on and I, uh, you've given me a lot to think about. I, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm following you. Uh, I'm a cheapo, so I haven't signed up for your Substack, but now I have to, especially these polls, these it, polls that you're taking. I'm very disappointed by the way that you didn't have Margaret Thatcher on your list. Did you have Margaret Thatcher on your no, list? No, I didn't. But Amy, it's free. You don't have to pay. Oh, it's free. Okay. You have an option well, I, paying. But you don't, you don't have to. You, you can read I will, everything. I will then visit it, and I would have liked to participate in the poll. I was, saw some really interesting things in that poll, uh, I have to say. Um, yeah, so thank you for what you do, and thank you for uh, running the CSBI. I, I follow all the people. Philippe Lemoyne, actually, I, I recently met him in Paris, had a very nice, long conversation with him. So. Oh. Beautiful. Well, he's a great guy. Too. Yeah. Great talking to you, Amy. And until next time. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>